Jonathan Edwards was an 18th century pastor in Northampton, Massachusetts, whom the Encyclopedia Britannica describes as the greatest theologian in all of American Puritanism. He was a leader in the Great Awakening that swept through the colonies of New England prior to the American Revolution. By any measure, Jonathan Edwards was an amazing man of God. He was a useful minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For 17 years, Edwards enjoyed a very warm, loving relationship with his congregation. But in 1744, that began to change. It changed as he started leading the church to practice biblical corrective discipline against some young adults, young men in the church, who had begun to treat young women in the church very sinfully and very shamefully. Now, Edwards made some mistakes in the process which he took along those lines. And a few influential members in the church took advantage of that and took the opportunity to stir up opposition against Edwards so that over the next few years, his motives, his character began to be questioned. And as he tried to lead the the church then into a biblical course of who should be received as members, and who should be received to the Lord's table according to the Word. Rumors began to be spread about him. He was accused by his detractors as setting himself up as an infallible judge that could see the states of men's souls. Testimonies began to swirl around the community about Edwards that were not true. Tensions became so heightened that on May 20th, 1749, Edwards wrote to his good friend John Erskine, who was a minister in Scotland, and he said, A very great difficulty has arisen between my people relating to qualifications for communion at the Lord's table. And he said, This resulted in a great uneasiness among my people and has filled the country with noise. A year later, By a vote of 90% of the majority, Jonathan Edwards was dismissed from the church that he had faithfully served for 23 years. A faithful ministry was brought to an end by false accusations and innuendo that ultimately undermined the minister's credibility in the minds of the congregation. Sadly, that tactic has been one of the most successful strategies of the devil that he's employed against churches and ministers throughout history. A gospel minister's stock in trade is truth. He is called to be a truth broker. He's called to know the truth, to study the truth, to proclaim the truth as it's revealed in the Word of God. And if a question mark is placed over his life, regarding his own truthfulness or integrity, then his effectiveness as a preacher and teacher of the gospel of Jesus is seriously diminished and in fact can be destroyed altogether. Jonathan Edwards was not the last pastor to have his integrity questioned by the people that he served. Nor was he the first. It happened to the Apostle Paul as well. It happened to Paul in his relationship with the church at Corinth. 
a church that he himself had planted and then lived among for 18 months, discipling and training them in the truth of God's word. Shortly after Paul left Corinth, the church fell into patterns of sinful behavior and they became vulnerable to false teachers who came among them and who began to spread rumors and innuendo about Paul's honesty and integrity. Some of this had to do with Paul changing plans that he had communicated to the Corinthians about how he intended to visit them. And so Paul's detractors went on to accuse him of duplicity and having false motives in his ministry. The letter of 2 Corinthians in our New Testament was written by Paul in order to address these false accusations and to repair his relationship to the church. Because the congregation had entertained these rumors and innuendo, their relationship to Paul had been seriously damaged. And as a result, their understanding of and commitment to the gospel was in danger. Well, we've been studying 2 Corinthians for the last several weeks. And today, in our ongoing study of this letter, we're going to see how Paul begins to defend his integrity by addressing the reasons that he changed his plans for travel, and more importantly, by showing the connection of his legitimate gospel ministry and the revealed gospel message that he proclaimed. Our text is 2 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. And we're going to read and look at verses, all the verses between chapter 1, verse 12, and chapter 2, verse 4. If you're using one of the Bibles that's provided in the chairs in front of you, that passage is found on page 964. Follow along in God's Word and keep the Scripture open before you today as we work our way through this portion of what God has revealed. First or 2 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 12, hear the word of the Lord. For our boast is this, Paul says, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope you will fully understand just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Did I make my plans according to the flesh? Ready to say, yes, yes, and no, no, at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no. But in Him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us. And who has also put His seal on us and given us His Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. 
But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lorded over your faith, but we work with you for your joy. For you stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I pained? And I wrote as I did so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. In these verses, the Apostle Paul begins the defense of his integrity as an apostle of Jesus Christ. And in doing so, he makes a very significant point that is important for followers of Jesus Christ to understand and to keep in mind as we live together as a church. That point is this. A faithful gospel ministry arises from the faithful gospel message. True ministry arises from the revealed message of what God has done for sinners in Jesus Christ. There are three truths in these verses we've read that I want to call to your attention that support this point. The first is this. A faithful gospel ministry is characterized by simplicity and godly sincerity. Simplicity and godly sincerity. Look at verse 12. Paul says it very straightforwardly. We behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity. Paul is saying that's the way that he lived and Timothy. Timothy writes this letter with him. Paul mentions him in the very beginning of the letter. So he's saying, when Timothy and I were among you, we lived before the world with simplicity and godly sincerity. What does he mean by that? Well, those are two very insightful words. Simplicity carries this idea of frankness of um, uprightness, of being straightforward. Paul uses this word eight times in his letters, and it's always used to commend a heart attitude that is admirable. To be simple in that sense is a good thing. It means that there's no duplicity. It means that you are up front, that what you see is what you get. And then he says also with godly sincerity. This is a word that is, is almost, almost of the same meaning. It means purity of motives. It means without mixture. It was used to describe gold that was unalloyed. So it was not mixed. And Paul says this is how we live among the world. Paul says I boast in this. He takes a proper kind of pride in the fact that his conscience can testify this is true about how I have lived. He's not boasting about this characteristic in him as if he himself accomplished it with his own strength. He realizes this is godliness in him and that it is godliness that has been cultivated in his life, as he puts it, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God. His conscience is clear that God in His grace has so helped him and strengthened him in this way that the accusations that are coming against him are false. He has been accused of acting sinfully. 
He's been accused of conducting himself as if he were a man who did not know God. And so he reminds the Corinthians that they should know this is not true because of how he lived among them when he was there for 18 months. They observed his life. He was in their homes. He was part of the congregation. He did not practice deceit and duplicity in his relationships with them. He was straightforward. He was sincere. That's the way, he said, he behaved before the world. But it's not the way that he merely lived. He didn't just live that way. It's also the way that Paul wrote and the way the, apostles, the, the Corinthians understood him to write when he sent letters to them. Look at verse 13. He says, for we don't, we're not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand just as you did understand us, he says in verse 14. They had already received two previous letters from Paul. What we have in our Bibles right before this letter, 1 Corinthians, he sent to them shortly after he left there, within six months or so. And then he wrote to them what he refers to as a letter that he wrote with tears. If you look down in chapter, four, chapter 2, verse 4, he describes a, a second letter that he sent to them. And what Paul is saying is, look, I didn't act and live one way when I was with you in presence and then write in a different way when I sent letters to you. No matter what the critics say. Because there were critics in the church now who said, oh, when Paul's here, man, you know, he's weak, but his letters are, are full of a lot of real powerful words. But face to face, he's not much. If you turn over a couple of pages to chapter 10, you'll see to what Paul refers. When he quotes his critics, verse 10 of chapter 10, he says, For they say, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no account. And then he goes on in the 11th verse and he adds, let such a person understand that what we say by letter when we're absent, we do when present. Paul is challenging the Corinthians to simply take him at his word. To believe him when he speaks. Don't accuse me of speaking with hidden meaning. Don't accuse me of being ambiguous. Of using innuendo. Of trying to communicate something kind of subtly to you. I mean what I say. I say what I mean. His life, his ministry before the Corinthians was simple and sincere. Now the Corinthians had observed Paul. They knew Paul. They should have known this about Paul. At least they, to a degree they did. But Paul goes on to say, the day's coming when you're going to understand this about me fully. They'll fully understand and even will boast about this incredible work of God between him and the congregation at the day that Christ returns. This is in verse 13 when he says, I hope you will fully understand. And then he goes on, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Paul anticipates the end of history. He anticipates the day when Jesus will return and bring history to a close. And all of God's people will meet before the throne of Jesus Christ and there give an account. Paul says on that day, he's convinced the Corinthians will 
fully understand the character of Paul's ministry among them and that they will properly boast about that just as he will properly boast in them. That is, that he and the Corinthians together on that day that Jesus appears will boast about the grace of God that brought them together, that caused them to both know the gospel, to cause the gospel to spread and take root, that that will be an occasion of their glorifying God because of what God has done among them. He says this work that one day we will see completely, clearly, fully understanding, we'll look back upon and we'll see, yeah, this was a ministry of simplicity and godly sincerity. It's impossible to overemphasize the importance of simplicity and godly sincerity for a faithful gospel ministry. Not only does a minister's personal integrity rest on these characteristics, but so does a church's spiritual welfare. Churches have been deeply injured. Some have been ruined by ministers who have been shady, misleading, and dishonest. One of the greatest sweeping examples of this is what happened in the middle part of the 20th century, the early and middle part of the 20th century here in America among mainline Christian churches. Liberalism had begun to infect churches in Europe and some churches in America in the 19th century. But then there grew up a form of liberalism that was not so blatant. It wasn't theological liberalism that just on its face said we don't believe the Bible, we don't believe the miracles, we don't think these things are true. This subtle form of liberalism that went under the name of neo-orthodoxy pretended to be a recovery of what the Bible says and it used biblical categories and even affirmed things that the Bible said like the inspiration of Scripture and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But here's the way a neo-orthodox would express his belief in the resurrection of Jesus. I believe in the resurrection of Jesus because when I trusted him, he was raised in my heart. Twisting what the Bible means when it speaks of the resurrection of Jesus. Not referring to what goes on in your heart, but referring to what happened 2,000 years ago in space and time when a dead man came back from the dead never to die again. Or as one New Orthodox pastor said to me, Oh, I can tell people I believe in the inspiration of Scripture because when I read it, it inspires me. Rather than simply saying, I don't believe in what the doctrine of inspiration says, that God inspired people to write His words in the Bible. Well, neo-orthodoxy has wreaked havoc upon churches that we now see as mere shells of their former selves because of its subtle inroads through duplicity in the ministers that serve them. Brothers and sisters, such duplicity, such innuendo and misuse of language is contrary to the way of Christ. It's contrary to faithful gospel ministry. We should seek to cultivate simplicity, sincerity in our own lives, and we should insist upon it in the lives of those who lead us in the church. That's the way that Paul lived. That's the way that Paul wrote. The Corinthians had understood, at least in part, that that's the character of his ministry. And Paul says one day they would understand completely that that was the way of his ministry. Well, this commitment to 
sincerity and simplicity explains how Paul made his original travel plans to Corinth and how he ultimately changed those plans. If you look at verses 15, 16, and 17, Paul dives into this particular subject. He expresses confidence in the Corinthians and his relationship with them and the fact that he had such confidence, that's the basis on which he made plans to travel to them. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 5-9, through 9, Paul had planted the church, been there 18 months, left the church some 5 or 6 months later, sends this letter back to them by Timothy, and he tells them at the end of that first letter, I intend to come to you, I intend to come visit you on my way back from Macedonia. I'm going to go to Macedonia on my way back. I'm going to stop in Corinth, may spend the winter with you there. Well, then when Timothy came back to Paul, having delivered that letter, he says, Paul, the church is in a mess. There's an uprising against you. There are people there that have begun to sow seeds of discord and challenge your integrity and challenge your sincerity. And so Paul recognizes that to go then in that same plan to carry out that plan would have been disastrous instead what he does is he makes a quick visit to Corinth he leaves Ephesus catches a ship goes to Corinth and in chapter 2 verse 1 of 2nd Corinthians you see him referring to a painful visit he said I want to make another painful visit indicating that he'd already made one such painful visit probably it was on that occasion when he went there to to correct this problem that had broken out that as he saw hopeful signs that things were being straightened out, that he said, look, when, when I come to you, I'm going to try to see you on my way to Macedonia, and I'm going to try to see you on my way back from Macedonia. That's probably when he made those plans and communicated those plans to them. His purpose was to see them twice, as he puts it in verse 15, so that they might experience a second measure of grace, a second experience of grace. What does he mean by that? Well, he tells us, next verse, that, he would see them when he went. He would see them when he came back. So they would have two occasions of fellowship. And as we know that he intended to visit them in part so that they could contribute to an offering that would go to the relief of Christians who were suffering in Jerusalem so that they could have two occasions to give to that offering. And then he said, I intended that you would send me on my way in verse 16 to Judea with this offering. But shortly after Paul made that quick, painful visit, he was publicly criticized in the congregation. His integrity began to be questioned by a vitriolic church member while the rest of the church just sat by and did nothing. They didn't do anything to correct and discipline that member, nor did they do anything to support or defend Paul against those false accusations. So this caused Paul to put those travel plans on hold. Verse 17, he tells us that those plans originally were made in the, with the best interest of the Corinthians in mind. He said, I wasn't vacillating. I, I didn't do this according to the flesh. This wasn't something that I just did on a whim. He said, I'm, I'm not like some double-minded man who says yes, yes, and no, no at the same time. He repeats them as if to, to give them a, a, a sense of urgency. I'm not the kind of guy who says, oh yes, absolutely, and then no way. I'm not that kind of guy. You know me. I've lived among you. I live with simplicity and sincerity. Paul's chiding them 
for not giving him the benefit of the doubt. He'd been with them for 18 months. They'd seen his life. The accusations coming against him are so out of character with what they had observed personally by his life. Now, it's as if they'd forgotten how Paul really was among them. And they themselves have begun to question his honesty and integrity. So he reminds them. He reminds them of the kind of man he is. The kind of man they themselves know him to be. Paul very straightforwardly denies and rejects their accusations. And he states of his ministry, that which is true of every faithful gospel ministry, that it is characterized by simplicity and godly sincerity. And then he goes on in verses 18 through 20 to show, secondly, that the faithful gospel message centers on Jesus Christ. The message that a minister of Christ is called to proclaim is Christ himself. In verse 17, to make his point, he asks rhetorical questions. But then he takes it upon himself in verse 18 to begin to answer those questions. He reminds them that just as his ministry was characterized by simplicity and sincerity, so was his message straightforward and unwavering. The message of Paul, and he mentions Silas, which is Sil or, uh, uh, Silas and, and Timothy, he says the message that we proclaim among you was an unambiguous message. Look at verse 18. As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. So what is he saying? The message we proclaimed is rooted in the faithfulness of God. God never changes. And the message that we proclaim from God has not been a changing message. No matter what other supposed apostles who've come to the Corinthians might suppose, might charge Paul with, his message was always the same. The situation that the church at Corinth is facing is very similar to the situation that the churches in Galatia faced after Paul planted them. People came among them and began to lead them away, undermining Paul's credibility in those churches, and then begin, to sowing, begin sowing seeds of doubt about the straightforward message of the gospel. Listen to what Paul wrote to the Galatians in Galatians 1, verse 8. He says, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. The word accursed is a very serious word. It means damned to hell pretty strong language to the apostle paul for somebody to change the message is what he's saying here is worthy of being condemned to hell he repeats it in verse 9 of galatians 1 as we've said before so now i say again if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received let him be accursed the gospel is an unchanging message it has been revealed and it is Entrusted to us as a matter of stewardship and faithful gospel ministers are not to shape it, not to shade things away from it. They are to deliver it faithfully as God has revealed it. Paul says, that's what we have done. Verse 19, what is the essence of this message? It's Christ. It's Christ. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you. Silvanus, which is another name for Silas, 
and Timothy and I, our message was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. They preached the person and work of Jesus Christ. They proclaimed good news of what God had done in sending his son into the world, what Jesus accomplished through his life, death and resurrection in the world. This is precisely the same thing that Paul reminded them of in his first letter, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, when he reminds them of how he came among them when he first showed up in Corinth. He says there in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 and 2, And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's it. That's the message. It's all about Christ. What God has done for us in Christ. The gospel is about Jesus. Who He is. What He's done. Why it matters. The Son of God becomes a man. A real man. Lives a life under the law of God without ever violating that law. And then chooses to step into the place of sinners before God's law. People who have shattered that law and represent them and take upon himself the sins of sinners and submit himself to the punishment that they deserve for sin on the cross. Why? So that sinners like you, like me, can be reconciled to God through him. So that our sins can indeed be paid for. So that God can receive us and welcome us to himself on the basis of a righteousness that another has lived and earned for us. We get it. Not by doing better, not by making promises. We get it by trusting Jesus Christ as Lord. And as we trust Him, we can be sure His righteousness is credited to us. His payment of sin goes to our account. All of our sin is regarded as being satisfied in his death. So, this makes the message of Christ simple and sincere. As he says in verse 19. It's not yes and no. The message of the gospel is always yes. Jesus Christ is God's yes to a broken, sinful world. Do you, do you see what Paul's saying here? It, it's actually staggering. The gospel is not some kind of complicated, uncertain, ever-changing message. It's not good news one day, bad news another day. It's not filled with uncertainties or inconsistencies. The message of the gospel is yes. In Jesus Christ, what God says to the world is always emphatically yes. Can sinful people be accepted by a holy God? In Christ, yes. Can lawbreakers be forgiven of sin? Every last sin we've ever committed? In Jesus Christ, Yes. Can I be reconciled to my Creator against whom I've rebelled and run away? Is there any hope for a person like me? 
in Jesus Christ? Yes. Jesus is God's yes to sinners. That's what Paul's saying. Have you thought about that? Do you consider that some of you are here this morning? You've never been reconciled to God. You don't know that your sins are forgiven. You need to hear God saying to you this morning with any honest question you have about your life, about your sin, that in Christ, God accepts you. In Christ, God is for you. In Christ, God will receive you. Believe it. It's good news. It's great news. Christ is God's answer for sinners. The only answer that we have. This message of Jesus Christ means that we can come to God with, with all of our sin, with all of our fears, with all of our doubts. And looking to Christ, we can hear God say, yes, welcome. Welcome. You're accepted for Christ's sake. To make sure that we don't misunderstand the magnitude of this point, Paul goes on in verse 20 to say that in Christ... All the promises of God are made certain. For, he says in verse 20, all the promises of God find their yes in Him, in Christ. That's why it is through Him that we utter our Amen to God for His glory. Every promise that God has ever made has been made certain by Jesus Christ. Think about that. The very first promise that He made to sinners in Genesis 3.15, Adam and Eve standing there in the ash heap of their own rebellion against God. And God says, I'm going to bring forth from the seed of the woman one who will crush the head of the serpent. A Savior's coming. Jesus arrives and makes that promise yes. The promise given to Abraham that from you I'm going to make family of nations that will bless all the nations on the earth. Jesus Christ is the yes to that promise. The promise made to David that David would have from his lineage one who would sit upon the throne of God's kingdom forever and ever and rule and reign. Jesus is that promise fulfillment. It's yes in Him. The promise made through the prophet Isaiah that the day is coming when God's going to enact a new covenant with sinners a covenant where he will guarantee all the conditions where everything necessary to save sinners and to keep us saved god himself will do and jesus comes and lives and dies and is raised from the dead and it's an exclamation point yes over that promise that god saves sinners all of the promises that God has ever made in His Word to people like you and me are yes in Jesus. You, you doubt sometimes the significance, the relevance, the sincerity, the truthfulness of God's promises to you, friend, brothers, sisters. Look at this passage of Scripture and think about what Jesus has already done and recognize when He was hanging on the cross, when He was raised from the dead, God was saying, guaranteed to all of His promises. Where are you today? You wonder if God's with you? Child of God, do you feel like God's far away from you? He's promised never to leave you or forsake you. You look at your life and you say, why are all these things against me? 
I don't know how I'm going to make it. God's promised to work all those things together for your good as you love Him and are called according to His purpose. You wonder if God really is for you? If God's really good to you and is going to be good to you? He says, He who did not spare His own Son but delivered Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? Everything that we need, everything that we could ever long for is found in Christ and secured by Christ for us. Christ is God's yes to the promises that He's made. Apart from Christ, you cannot know God. It is only through Christ that we come to experience the reality, the affirmation of blessing. That's why Paul goes on to say, all praise is offered to God through Christ. You see what he says here? We say amen. He says we utter amen, which means we should not only say it in our hearts, we should actually say it. We should utter amen to the things that God reveals to us that we see are so true, so glorious. God's yes gets a response of our amen. Yes, amen. We agree. We see this. We experience this. We utter that, he says, through him, through Christ, to God for his glory. We say amen to God and all he's done for us in Christ in order that he might receive glory through our expressions of praise. Apart from Christ, you can't praise God. Apart from Christ, you can't know God. In Christ, we do glorify God when we affirm all of the provisions He's made for us as we trust His Son, Jesus Christ. So a faithful gospel ministry is characterized by simplicity and sincerity. The faithful, faithful gospel message centers upon Jesus Christ. And this leads us to that final point that really summarizes the first two. Both the message and the ministry of the gospel are determined by what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. The message centers on Christ, determined by Christ. And the ministry of those who would proclaim that message is determined by what God has done for us in Jesus. In verses 21 22, we have one of the most amazing God-centered statements of how salvation works that's found anywhere in the Bible. And then Paul follows that up with him giving a more detailed explanation of why he changed his travel plans, and in doing so, he opens up his heart to us again, and we get further glimpses into his emotional life as a minister of the gospel. The message of the gospel recognizes that God is the one who saves us in Christ. Look at verse 21. He says, And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ. God's the one who puts people in Christ. God's the one who saves sinners. He's the one who convicts us of our sin. He's the one who calls us in a way that we cannot help but hear and respond. He's the one who grants faith so that we might believe. He's the one who grants repentance so that we might turn from sin. And God makes the message of the gospel effectual, effective, by the Holy Spirit. Look at the end of verse 21. And God has anointed us. And there's a little play on words Paul's using there because Christ means the anointed one. And so God has put us in the anointed one by anointing us, he says in verse 22. And has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Do you see what Paul says God does? God saves sinners. How does he do it? He puts us in Christ. 
He anoints us, that is, He separates us for Himself. He puts us apart from unconverted humanity the way that an Old Testament king was separated from the rest of the people, an Old Testament priest was separated from the rest of the people. He anoints us. He puts His seal upon us. A seal was a sign of ownership. It was a sign of authenticity. It was a sign of security. And so God shows all those things in us when He seals us. He gives us His Spirit, Paul says, as a guarantee. You could translate that word as a down payment on the full blessings of salvation. The Spirit's presence in a believer's life is the promise of God that there's more to come. That salvation will be fully completed in that believer. The Spirit indwells us. He assures us that having begun the good work in us, God will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. So God's the one who sent His Son into the world to save sinners. And as Paul puts it later in this letter in chapter 5, verse 19, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself. He is the one who saves from first to last. Brothers and sisters, we need to realize this. We need to remind ourselves of this. If you're saved because you're saved, the reason you're saved, it's God. It's not because you're smart. It's not because you did anything. It's not because you're better than others, because you figured stuff out. It's because of God. You say, well, yeah, but I believed, I repented. Sure you did, but where did that repentance and faith come from? God. But I responded, yeah, but who changed your heart to respond? God. Well, but I considered this and I came to see it was true. Yeah, but who convinced you? It was God. Your salvation's all of God. And if that's true, we ought to be the most dumbfounded people in the world that God would save the likes of us. And we ought to be the most hopeful people in the world that if He saved us, He could save anybody. It's God. Salvation is of the Lord. If you're not a Christian, you ought to think about this too. I fear that some of you may have this misconception in your mind about salvation. Well, I'm considering it. I'm thinking about it. I believe one day I may be saved. I, you know, one day when I have time, I'm going to think about it a little bit. Then I'm just going to make my decision and I'll become a Christian. You see what this is saying? The whole Bible teaches this salvation is not in your hands, salvation is in God's hands. God's the one who does it. And, and so, showing you this from His Word, what should be your response? Do you see how absolutely dependent you are upon God? And if God's begun to, to work in you to convince you of your need of salvation, of the availability of salvation, that Jesus Christ is a great Savior, God's yes to sinners, and you sense that, you feel that, you see that, Come to Christ now. Believe it now. Ask God now to save you. Young people, some of you have heard this message all your lives. You have grown up in homes and churches where this truth has been set before you that you need Jesus Christ to be saved. And, and you're just kind of thinking, well, yeah, maybe one day. Probably I will. See, salvation's of the Lord not up to you. You're at His mercy. Children, you see this? If this is true, shouldn't you be 
calling upon the Lord, save me? Shouldn't you be asking Him to do for you what only He can do? Plead with God. Throw yourself at His mercy. Ask Him to change your heart. Ask Him to do for you what He's done for so many in this room. What He did for Paul. What He did for these Corinthians. So that you can come to know in Christ forgiveness of sins, reconciliation with God. He will save you. Trust Christ. He will save you. The ministry of the Gospel exudes the Spirit of the Gospel, which is the Spirit of grace and mercy. Paul begins to make this point in verse 23. He says that I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to you in Corinth. The, the, the Spirit of the Gospel, the ministry of the Gospel, is concerned with the welfare of the people, not the power of the preacher. The reason Paul changed his plans, not his sake, but people's sake. He didn't want to go to Corinth the way he had planned to go to Corinth, not because he was fickle, but because he was merciful. To go and carry out those plans now that he heard what was going on there would have necessitated required, necessitated a painful visit. And he wanted to avoid that a second time. So he invokes God to take the witness stand against him as judge. God knows my conscience. God knows my thoughts. If I'm not telling the truth, let God make it known. And he quickly states, having done that, that he's not setting himself up as Lord over their faith. You see that in verse 24? He said, not that we lord it over your faith. That word lord means to dominate, to rule with an authoritarian hand. It's the same word that Jesus used to describe how the Gentiles lorded over one another in Luke 22, 25, and 26. He says the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And then he contrasts how the way of Christ is different than that. He says, rather, not with you, let the, le- the greatest among you become as the youngest, the leader as one who serves. See, Christian leadership is always servant leadership. It has authority vested by Christ through the church, but that authority is always exercised for the welfare of those who are being led. This type of spirit avoids inflicting needless pain while trying to cultivate and encourage mutual joy. Look at verse 1 of chapter 2. So I, I don't want, I didn't want to make another painful visit to you. Instead, he says, I wanted to work for your joy in verse 24. That's the part of the calling of a pastor is to work for the congregation's joy in Christ, to cooperate with people, to come to know the joy of the Lord. In verse 2 of chapter 2, he says, If I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? You see, Paul's ministry is not about himself and his ease, but rather it's about the welfare of the people he serves. His life is so bound up in them that he can't be glad when they are pained. His emotional life is tied to their welfare. And he took no pleasure in causing them pain. He was a minister for their joy. This is the spirit of true gospel ministry. It reflects the very heart of God that we see operating in the gospel of Jesus. What did God do by sending Jesus into the world? Jesus was sent by God into the world for our joy. To make us glad, joyful, happy in God. 
Do you understand that God is more concerned about your joy than you are? And He knows where your greatest capacity of joy can be filled? It's not in the stuff that the world sets before us as, man, get this, have this, do this, and then you'll really have life. No, it's in Christ. That's why Jesus came. It was for our joy. That's why God sends the Spirit into the world to convict us of our sin. Conviction of sin isn't immediately joyful, but it is a means to make us glad in the forgiveness of sins that comes through Jesus Christ. Well, in addition to this, Paul goes on to show us that a faithful gospel ministry and a faithful gospel minister will love deeply, even at great personal cost. This is the way he closes out this section in verses 3 and 4. He explains why and how he wrote that tearful letter to them. That letter that caused so much pain in them. You can read chapter 7, verses 8 and 9 and get an elaboration of how it caused them grief. But that letter that caused grief also led them to repent. And it was written out of love. He wrote that so that through repentance, they might come to much joy and that their joy and His joy would be multiplied in a mutual relationship with each other. And he says in verse 4, I did it out of love. Look at verse 4. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. I mean, if you could choose and say, well, I think today I want to experience much affliction, much anguish of heart, and cry many tears. Is that something you would choose to do? That's not something that we just run after, having those kinds of emotional experiences. But Paul uses these three graphic phrases to describe how, describe how emotionally distressing the whole experience was for him. Much affliction. One writer has translated this gut Wrenching. Sits down. He thinks about what's going on at Corinth. Has to be corrected. He just has an emotional reaction to addressing it. Anguish of heart. Heart breaking. Many tears. Profuse weeping. Why? Why would Paul subject himself to that kind of emotional upheaval? Not to cause you pain. But to let you know the abundant love I have for you. The painful letter Paul had to write to the Corinthians was to confront them over their sin. If you've ever had to confront somebody over sin, you know how difficult it is. You know it can be all of these things that Paul describes here. It's much easier to let it go. Or it's much easier to get mad at them and then to speak out of anger, right? But to be heartbroken, to let yourself feel emotionally what you ought to feel in the relationship of love and then with that love move forward to confront, to correct. It is heartbreaking. But Paul loved the church at Corinth too much to let them go on in their sin. Parents, we face this regularly, don't we? You've got little children especially. If they sin, they need to be corrected and yet they may cry and you think, you know, this tenderness comes out. You think, I just should let it go or maybe act like I didn't see it or something, avoid the confrontation. You know, we, we do that, right? 
and the, God knows that temptation parents face. That's why he put Proverbs 13, 24 in the Bible. He who withholds the rod hates his son. But he who loves him disciplines him diligently. What's that mean? It means loving discipline can look like, feel like hatred. And yet, what appears to be hateful can be, in fact, real love. And we need to take God at His word and understand this. Paul was willing to be considered harsh and unloving when he wrote the difficult letter, but he loved the church too much not to write the difficult letter. He was Christ's minister, and so he conducted himself accordingly as Christ's man. The way he preached, the way he wrote, the way he planned, the way he changed his plans were all done with a view of reflecting the faithfulness of God and the mercy and grace and humility of Jesus Christ in saving sinners. I love what the Puritan John Flavel wrote one time to fellow pastors. He said, a crucified style best suits the preachers of a crucified Christ. And that's good counsel not only for pastors and preachers, it's a good reminder for every Christian. Jesus Christ laid down His life for us. We have a crucified Master. One time when Jesus was trying to encourage humility in His disciples who were following Him, He used this argument. He said, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. That's our Master. And so to follow Him is to seek to exude that same spirit. Well, Paul's in a very awkward position when he writes 2 Corinthians. His motives have been questioned. His integrity has been challenged. His name has been dragged through the mud by the very people he's ministered to, to whom he loves. He's given himself in love who he wants to serve. And the way that he responds is instructive to us. He doesn't lash out in return. He doesn't turn on these people in kind. And neither does he simply walk away and ignore what was going on. George Guthrie writes with clear insight when he says, certainly having one's integrity unfairly called into question constitutes one of the most difficult experiences in ministry. To feel emotionally stripped and exposed to the brutal false blows of a gossip or liar can test our character in the extreme especially when we have no immediate way to address the accusations. Paul shows us how a faithful man of God following the example of Jesus Christ responds. He reminds the church of what they already know and have observed about his character in life. He reminds them of the character of God. And he reminds them of the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he shows them how both his teaching and his life have been shaped by that gospel and he does all that not primarily to vindicate himself in their eyes, but in order to protect them from turning away from the very gospel that he preached that they believed. On July 1st, 1750, ten days after the vote to fire him from his church was ratified, Jonathan Edwards preached his farewell sermon to the people of Northampton. The text that he chose, 2 Corinthians 1.14, one of the verses we've looked at, this morning and after admonishing them to consider that the day is coming when they will all stand before Jesus Christ and giving them pointed applications urging them to continue seeking the Lord this is how he concluded that sermon having briefly mentioned these important articles of advice 
Nothing remains but that I now take my leave of you and bid you all farewell, wishing and praying for your best prosperity. I would now commend your immortal souls to him who formerly committed them to me, expecting the day when I must meet you again before him who is the judge of the quick and the dead. I desire that I may never forget this people who have been so long my special charge and that I may never cease fervently to pray for your prosperity. May God bless you with a faithful pastor, one that is well acquainted with his mind and will, thoroughly warning sinners, wisely and skillfully searching professors, and conducting yourself in the way, and conducting you in the way of eternal blessedness. May you have truly a burning and shining light set up on this candlestick. And may you, not only for a season, but during his whole life, and that a long life, be willing to rejoice in his light. May God grant to each of us such humility and integrity in our lives together as the church of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would seal it to our hearts this morning. Help us to examine ourselves in the light of things that we've considered. To turn from sin. To trust the Lord Jesus as a great Savior. For we pray in his name. Amen.